If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Murder Mile. Today, I'm standing on Greek Street in Soho, W1. A few doors south of the disgruntled dishwasher who shot his fiery chef dead. A few doors northeast of the shooting at the Golden Goose Arcade. And just a few doors north of the brutal street attack by two good Samaritans. Coming soon to Murdermar. At 55 Greek Street currently stands a four-story terrace built in the 1980s, as the original building was destroyed during the Blitz. With offices above and a cafe on the ground floor, a smattering of outside seats are often occupied by fed-up couples sitting in silence, scowling like bulldogs with piles, as they dream of this half-wit that they once loved, choking on the shortbread or being scolded by a cappuccino. This is why all-you-can-eat buffets are so popular amongst couples, as unwilling to do time for each other's murder. Ladles of fatty food piled high means less reason to talk, but also a much crueler death. Back in 1883, on the third floor, in a front room at 55 Greek Street, lived saddle maker William Crease and his new bride of just two weeks, Eliza. Technically, this was their honeymoon. A twee period where most couples kiss, cuddle and say I love you. But with a very common illness plaguing his insides. Something nasty, which had festered and laying dormant for possibly decades, would soon arise. My name is Michael. I'm your tour guide 
and this is Murder Mile. Episode 217 Eliza Crease and the Honeymoon from Hell. There are four stages of syphilis. Primary, which lasts six to eight weeks, beginning with painless sores, at the point where the bacteria entered the body, before this canker erodes into a painless grey ulcer. Many don't know that they have syphilis, as with the sores not bleeding nor irritable, no one thinks to check. In the Victorian era, these sores, also known as cankers, were often burned off with acid or treated with mercury. Considered more of an art than a science, doctors freely administered highly toxic mercury at levels at their own discretion, with some quacks administering it as a pill, an ointment, a steam bath, or injected directly into the urethra. This treatment was often more deadly than the disease itself. Even with treatment to cauterize the sores, the second stage of syphilis usually occurs 10 weeks after the initial infection, appearing as painless rashes where the grey-heeled sores now sit. But yet again, as they don't itch, no one thinks to check. And as the bacteria begins to infect the rest of the body, other more obvious symptoms develop, like fever, swollen glands, headaches, fatigue, weight loss and hair loss, as well as muscle and bone ache. This escalation of symptoms is something we see with many diseases, as when the bacteria ravages the body and even our own defences are unable to cope. The host often gets sicker and weaker. But syphilis is sneaky and it's subtle. As acting like a seasonal disease like the flu. It arrives, it infects, it announces its presence in a big way. And regardless of whether the host gets treatment or not, the symptoms clear up, as if the infection has gone. Or at least that's what it wants you to think. But without penicillin, the infection may move on to the latent and possibly tertiary stages of syphilis. Latency is the third stage of syphilis, during which the disease lays dormant inside the host's body with no symptoms. No cough, no fever and no cankers. The disease is entirely silent, to the point where the patient may have forgotten that they have syphilis or mistakenly believe that they've been cured. But the latency can last a few months, usually a few years, but in some cases it can fester for decades. Without treatment, up to 40% of those infected developed the final stage, tertiary syphilis, 
like the Grim Reaper itself. It never warns of its arrival until it's too late. As before, ulcers appear. Only as these painful cankers begin to burrow deep into the soft flesh and the brittle bones, eating away at the fleshy extremities like the nose, and riddling the body with ugly lesions and unsightly growths. It leaves its breathing host with a hollow bony skull of someone who looks dead, but is still alive. But it's not just the body that it attacks, but also the central nervous system and the brain. Often developing into neurosyphilis, patients suffer from confusion, memory loss, paranoia, and changes in personality, as well as blindness, paralysis, and dementia. As the host's body, brain, and soul is eaten from within, driving them to insanity, suicide, and in some cases, even murder. It was uncertain when William Creese contracted syphilis. William Selleck Creese was born in 1845 in Blandford, Dorset, on the southwest coast of England. As the son of a Navy excise officer, they moved to be near the shipyards. And as a solid, hard-working family, every one of his siblings earned an honest wage as a clockmaker, a seamstress, or a glovemaker. By 1861, with his mother Jane having passed away, even as the youngest of seven, 16-year-old William made his way in life as a saddler's apprentice. Over the next 10 years, it's uncertain what he did, as although some reports incorrectly state that he joined the Navy, possibly as a lazy way to suggest how he contracted syphilis, he actually remained in Devon. In early 1872, aged almost 30, William married Lucy Wherry, a local girl from Great Torrington. As was the tradition, they set about building a family and a happy home in their birthplace, with four children following, who as a symbol of pride, or possibly arrogance, took William's middle name as their own. With Sidney Selleck in 1873, William Selleck in 1874, Thomas Selleck in 1876, and Lucy Selleck in 1879. This should have been the epitome of a good life. A loving wife and four healthy children and living in a little cottage at 11 Castle Street in Great Torrington, with enough money brought in by William, whose skill as a saddler meant they were never without. Life at that point was good. But for inexplicable and unexplainable reasons, 
just as his youngest was being born. William left. He left his job. He left his home. He left his wife and four children. And having fled the county, he would never return. Like the selfish shit that he truly was, he wouldn't provide them with a single penny to aid their upbringing. He just kept moving, so they couldn't track his whereabouts. And as he refused to divorce Lucy, this single mother was left without any hope of ever finding a legitimate father for her children. And yet as a strong, independent woman who earned a living as a glove maker, without William in her life, she made a good life for herself, her children. And in 1911, she was technically listed as a widow. So maybe we could say that Lucy Crease, the first wife of William, had a lucky escape. By April 1880, William had moved to Kingston-upon-Thames in southwest London. Having found work as a saddle-maker to Mr Webster, before his youngest was even one year old, he had already bigamously married a local girl called Harriet Potter, and the two had begun a new life together. On the 1st of October 1880, a few months after their marriage, the new Mr and Mrs Crease travelled down from Kingston-upon-Thames to the seaside town of Eastbourne in search of work. Lodging cheaply at the pokey little home of Mrs Bourne at 8 Maybury Terrace, as they hadn't a single penny to pay their rent. Without her permission, he pawned his wife's sewing machine. As a ragged woman, who officers stated was literally starving to death, Harriet begged her husband for just one of those shillings to give her body an ounce of strength. As by the seventh, all she had eaten was a small potato and a stale piece of bread. But having taken umbrage at her daring to question his authority, he unleashed a barrage of hurtful barbs and he threatened to stab her in the heart. In the front room of 8 Maybury Terrace, Harriet sat with PC James Gambrill giving a statement as Mrs. Bourne, the landlady, looked on. The house was quiet. Until at 4.15pm, the doorbell rang. Mrs. Bourne answered it. And in the hallway, high words and a brief scuffle were heard. As William stormed in, his eyes fixed on his cowering wife, as his snarling mouth fired a furious torrent of rage in her direction. Constable Gambrill would state 
He didn't say a word to me. Not one. Suddenly, without the slightest provocation, he brandished Butcher's knife and stabbed me in the neck. But dodging the blow, and with the blade embedding into this copper's stiff leather collar, although it was stated an inch higher and the officer's head would have been severed, the tip barely left a puncture mark in his neck. With the officer briefly startled, William tried to stab, as he had promised, Harriet in the heart. And although weak with hunger, as she dodged his blade and fled the house, before he could strike again, the constable swung the heavy cast iron handcuffs at William's wrist, causing him to drop the knife. Bundled onto the floor by three passing constables who Harriet had fetched, William was arrested. Seen as a premeditated attack, as he had purchased the butcher's knife that day using the money he had made from his wife's pawned possessions, he was swiftly charged with two counts of attempted murder. On the 6th of November, 1880, William Creese was tried at Maidstone Petty Sessions for a crime which should have seen him executed or sentenced to life for hard labour. But with Mrs. Bourne, the landlady, being too ill to attend and unable to prove her illness, on a technicality, William was found not guilty of attempted murder but guilty of theft and dishonesty, he was sentenced to three years at Lewis Prison. So maybe we could say that, just like Lucy, Harriet Crease, the second wife of William, had a lucky escape. Only that luck would run out for his third wife. Born in 1861, Eliza Ann Horseman was the eldest daughter of John, a confectioner from Worthing. How they met was unrecorded. But living in an era where an unmarried woman was frowned upon, Eliza's options were limited, the courtship was short, and her father hadn't met William before the wedding. On the 22nd of October, 1883, William Crease and Eliza Horseman moved into the front third-floor room at 55 Greek Street in Soho. A small, squalid, sparsely furnished room with a box bed and a horsehair mattress, a washstand, a wooden table with two chairs and a fireplace. As one of the cheapest hovels, in this decrepit sea of vice. Voices of disquiet echoed up its rickety stairs as a chilly wind blew through the broken window. Only William hadn't come here for work, 
In fact, he hadn't done a solid day's work in years. And having pawned off most of what they owned to pay the rent, he spent most of his days lost in thought. William chose Soho for one reason. As describing his head as affected. Although there's no record of William being afflicted by such tertiary stage deformities as sunken eyes, festering sores, and a hole in his face as if his nose had been eaten whole. Possibly as these deformities were so commonplace. William was a frequent patient at two psychiatric hospitals, the Westminster and Charing Cross. Suffering with confusion, headaches, paranoia, rage and hallucinations. Back then, there was no known cure for tertiary syphilis. Except for a miracle recovery, confinement to a workhouse infirmary, or a long, slow and painful death. Which may explain some of William's bizarre actions, but not all of them. On the evening of Thursday the 29th of October, 1883, William and Eliza attended the Promenade concerts. A series of classical concerts in London's Royal Parks, where the public could stand or stroll, whilst taking a picnic and listening to the William Tell Overture by Rossini, Largo by Handel, or Don Carlos by Verdi. It should have been a romantic day, for this unwed twosome, as William proposed to Eliza. But with this special moment, having descended into ranting over the simplest of things, the love was hurt. So it's odd that alongside their escalating fights, with no money and no prospects, that William and Eliza wrote a letter to her father announcing their impending marriage just five days before the wedding. A speed which suggests either coercion, a legal necessity, or maybe a moral obligation if Eliza was pregnant. On the morning of Wednesday the 14th of November 1883, William Crease met Eliza's father at London Bridge Station. Dressed in his one good suit, John Horseman said that William presented himself well as a saddlemaker and a lover who felt happier having met Eliza. Never once mentioning that he was still bigamously married having never divorced and that one wife he had abandoned and the other he had tried to kill. Having guided his father-in-law to a small service at St. Anne's Church on Soho's Dean Street, as John Horseman proudly gave away his eldest daughter, he was unaware that just two weeks later, that hall would host the inquest into her death. 
the morning of Friday the 30th of November 1883, began as moody and brooding as a bruised winter sky. Although still on their honeymoon, which they spent in their squalid lodging, being married for two weeks, lodgers for five, and a couple for just two months, this day began as they all did, with a quarrel. Their fight was over the wedding ring itself. Maybe he planned to pawn it. Maybe this band was only made of brass. Or maybe, through the murmurings of two former wives with a warning to share, word had got out that this marriage was null and void. At 8pm, William came home and found that Eliza was out, drowning at sorrows in the Carlisle Arms. One hour later, slightly sozzled, but little more than a little bit tipsy, Eliza asked her landlady if a letter had arrived for her. There hadn't been. But witnesses would state she seemed well and in good spirits. Shortly after this, at roughly 9.50pm, having reluctantly ascended to the squalid room that she shared with her new husband, who harbored a deadly disease and a festering rage, the neighbors all state that they heard William and Eliza arguing. Only this didn't cause them any concern, as their fights were so often. Louisa Brigner, a lodger in the back room of the top floor, stated, The fight lasted about ten minutes. I went down to tell the landlady. I asked her to tell them to be quiet. And then suddenly, everything went quiet. Susanna Plantin, a lodger on the second floor, said, I heard a noise as if someone got up from a chair in the room above ran to the door, and then fell. A little before the fall, I heard three or four awful screams. It was a woman's screams, which echoed the house as she fought for her life. But no one came. Moments later, William left 55 Greek Street, taking the key and never to return. It's uncertain what he did or where he went for the next hour. But at 11.10pm, on Moore Street, just off Compton Street, PC Henry Dyer saw William behaving strangely. Catching hold of the officer's cape, William danced about him, his eyes wide as they protruded from his head. As he muttered, the doctor told me to do it. It is a glorious deed. Asked what he had done. Although sober, William could only repeat those same few words. The doctor 
told it to do it. But looking down and seeing that this man's clenched fists and tatty clothes were sopping with slowly congealing blood, as he hadn't any obvious injuries of his own, PC Dyer arrested him on the charge of being a lunatic at large. And this strange and peculiar man was held at Vine Street Police Station. At 2am, with William committed at the police surgeon's orders to the workhouse asylum, PC Dyer attended 55 Greek Street to find the blood's origins. Inside, tenants spoke of shouting, of screams, and then silence. Knocking on the door, the officer got no reply. Trying the handle, although the key was missing, the door was not locked. But as he opened it wide, instantly he was aware of what he was witnessing. There was no disarray in the room, suggesting there was no struggle. By the fireplace was a chair, on which a poker, a brass candlestick and a knife had been placed. And although the candlestick was untouched, the knife was thick with still sticky blood, and the heavy cast iron poker was badly bent. Found lying on the hard wooden floor before the door, although she was called to the touch, P.C. Dyer sent for Dr. Farquhar Matheson of 11 Soho Square, who determined her life as extinct. Fully dressed and lying straight with her hands over her breast, it looked as if Eliza had been posed to be placed in a coffin, and yet her death may not have been obvious had it not been for the blood. Lying with a deep red halo about her head, Dr. Matheson would state she had been stunned fast. As with two hard blows, William had struck her over the back of the head, smashing her skull into sharp shards of jagged bone, which embedded into the soft spongy matter of her brain. As witnesses had correctly heard, Eliza had fallen. But with her barely conscious and yet still alive, with the knife, William slashed a great gash across her throat, tearing at all the structures from the skin to the spine. As the blade severed her muscles, her windpipe, her jugular vein, and her carotid artery. It was this wound which would take her life. Only he had not finished his frenzy. With a knife, he stabbed her three times in the side, pissing her lung, kidney and heart. To her left arm, a hard blow had fractured the bone. But with his rage brewing even further, 
with the knife as a fist, he smashed her in the nose, shattering the bones, cutting the right nostril till it bent backwards, slicing up her left eye. And with repeated blows, he broke almost every bone in her face, as if to destroy it forever. Informed at St. James's workhouse that he was being arrested for murder, he seemed not to be aware of the words, and he made no reply. Examined by Dr. John Kemp, seeing that his eyes didn't constrict when exposed to the light, which they should do, the divisional police surgeon deduced that William was suffering from Argyle Robertson pupils. A known symptom of neurosyphilis, and one of the latter stages of tertiary syphilis. With William deemed to be in a very bad state of health, on Tuesday, the fourth of December, eighteen eighty-three, at St Anne's Church, where he and his victim had been married just two weeks before. The jury returned a verdict of willful murder, and he was bound over to appear at the Old Bailey on a criminal charge. With William being too ill to attend court, although there was no refuting his guilt, William was found guilty, but insane, where he was committed to Broadmoor to be detained at Her Majesty's pleasure. As one of the hardest parts of the investigation, Eliza's father John had to identify what remained of his daughter's body. But with a face and head barely recognizable, he could only confirm it was her by her dress, a birthmark, and by the cheapness of her wedding ring. Committed to Broadmoor Criminal Lunatic Asylum, which specialized in the mentally unwell. Although at the time of the crime, 38-year-old William Selick Crease was struggling with late-stage syphilis, it is uncertain, with penicillin yet to be discovered, how he lasted so long. As on Tuesday, the 15th of November, 1932, 49 years after the murder, William died at Broadmoor, aged 85. He was said to have been in good health in his last week, but owing to senile decay, he died of natural causes. Syphilis is a deadly disease, a silent killer which arrives without warning, vanishes without a trace, lies dormant for months, years, and even decades, and then, like a rabid dog, springs forth and attacks. But were his actions the disease's fault? Did it exacerbate who he was, or was he always crazed killer? If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. <sighs> wow. How long did that take? Longer than normal, but then again, I expected it to be a lot longer. Cool. Lummy. Longer episode. <sighs> Blimey. Uh, because it's what time is it it's about half past six in the evening yeah i just finished editing 216 and i thought i've got enough time i'm gonna um i'm gonna do the record for 217 only because uh, it's evening it's evening and the birds are going to bed and no one's really on the towpath there's only been like about one or two aircraft above so i haven't been swearing that much i haven't told uh ceos in their little pathetic aircraft that i'm gonna kill them so uh yeah so someone might live today i'm just gonna have a swig of my diet coke oh as i was going into the um uh the coffee shop the bakery was still open and they're just down to the dregs of the cakes but there was enough left so i bought um a school cake or oh, sponge with icing with hundreds of thousands on top and then two um two bakewell tarts yummy oh so i'm looking forward to those i can have those very shortly get in my belly get in my belly can't wait for that oh it's gonna be good oh so yeah cake excitement i'm not gonna have a cup of tea because it's too late too late for I think I said this last week, too late for caffeine, but I'm drinking a Diet Coke. What an idiot. What an absolute turd head. Oh, well, anyway. Uh, so um, what else is going on? Not really a lot. Eva's out tonight. Eva's out tonight. She's always out every night. Eva's out tonight. And she hasn't left, what I can see, she hasn't left any little spy cameras here to keep an eye on me. She likes to keep an eye on me. She's a very jealous woman. Um and she keeps tabs on me. Uh, so I've downloaded the new series starring Professor Alice Roberts. <sighs> oh, dear. Looking forward to that. So I can do that because Eva's out. Eva gets very jealous. She watches what I watch on telly and then she gets upset if there's uh, any nice ladies on there. Oh, Professor Alice Roberts. 
Oh dear, blimey. Anyway, so that's that's my treat for tonight. I'm going to watch the new series. Very nice. So uh, let's dive into some quiz questions uh, and then we'll do some extra stuff uh, that may not make it into the episode because it's a slightly... <coughs> oh, that was lovely, wasn't it? That was, we're doing an episode on syphilis. We should really have done an episode on bronchitis. There we go. Almost repaired. Can make it up hills now. Uh, apparently the cough is going to linger for a little bit longer, but that's to be expected. But apart from that, no more mucus. Yes, no more green mucus. No more, I filled two bin bags full of tissues and mucus. Honestly, it was like being a teenage boy again. Uh, only the mucus didn't smell as pungent um that's well, giving away too much there um so yeah no nice nice to know I it's weird when you think that your lungs are full of uh air so you can breathe but then you spend all your time coughing up this horrible mucus and given how much i was producing i just kept thinking where is there space for air there clearly wasn't a lot of space for air which is why i was struggling anyway that's a boring conversation let's do this and then turd on a motorbike coming down the towpath utter turd not meant to drive a motorbike on the towpath what a turd if i if i was out there now on the towpath having my evening walk oh, he would get such a stern look i would turn and i'd kind of fix him with my glare but if he looked at me i'd look i'd probably look away and uh or pretend i was on the phone or something you know but yeah well, i i know that i win uh right let's do the quiz question don't forget i haven't edited the episode yet so some of these may get edited out they probably will because it's a longer episode right get ready uh question number one what are the four stages of syphilis i'm the first two are easy <coughs> question number two how many londoners had syphilis in the early 19th century uh, i didn't pose it as a number it was kind of a a how many of how many uh, question number three name one of the four ways mercury was administered as a cure for syphilis Mm, lovely especially the last one Ooh, dear uh, question number four what was william crease's middle name um i've misspelt that on there and for some reason i've written what was william crease's idol name <sighs> uh, question number five name one of the four occupations that women you can tell i'm tired name one of the four occupations william's family had at the time he was born Question number six, what village in Devon did William grow up and raise his family in? Almost. I've in brackets put almost there because he, he didn't. Uh, question number seven, what was the name of William's first wife? Question number eight, what was the name of William's second wife? Question number nine, the final question, because I only did nine. Don't worry, it's not what was the name of William's third wife, because we know it was Eliza. Uh, question number nine was, what job did William do for a living? There, I've given you a nice, easy one. Uh, so let's dive into some uh, tings. Uh, ooh, burpees then. Uh, uh, William uh, originally kind of growing up in and around Lyme Regis on the southeast coast of Dorset, but because of his dad's job, they had to move to another, to a part on the north side of Dorset. Um, uh, let's not do any of that because it gives away a lot of the questions. Let me just get through that. I can't do that because it's William's job. Oh, Michael, what have you done? 
uh, first marriage. Um, so first marriage two. Can't give, say that because that's uh, his wife's name, and that's a quiz question. Uh, we know that she was born in the kind of the autumn months of 1852. She was around 20 years old at the time. Um, he was around 30. She origi- originated from the same area as well. Um, they had a series of children, Sydney, William, Thomas and Lucy, uh, all with uh, his middle name as their middle name as well, which is a bit arrogant, bit arrogant. Uh, they lived with her mum, Mary. She was widowed at the time. Um, and then he, he just seems to up. He just ups and, and buggers off. We don't know why. Um, there was something that I took out of the episode. It it kind of didn't make sense. I was going to put it in there. But uh, it, this was in uh, the uh, North Devon Journal on the 20th of April, 1846. Um James Barrow charged with assaulting William Crease is the right William Crease on the fourth instant. Uh, uh, the complainant stated that on the fourth instant he was fishing near Rotherham Bridge in Great Torrington, which is still there today. When the defendant asked what he had caught, a salmon, an altercation took place. William threw a rock at James. The charge was dismissed. Um, so he's he, even at that age, he's clearly still got a. a a lot of anger in him there's a lot there's a lot going on so really we don't know where william got his syphilis from if indeed he did have syphilis this is the problem is because we don't have any pictures of william uh therefore we can't see can't physically see the symptoms of william and in none of the reports um there is because that final report states that he has a symptom which is uh determined to be uh it was argyle robertson pupils which means when the light is shined into your eyes obviously your eyes should kind of the pupils should go go smaller because it doesn't want to let in as much light but his don't his don't react to the light which is a a symptom of neurosyphilis so they were saying at that point that it's most likely that he had syphilis and when you look at his back history it's most likely he has syphilis but in none of the reports do they say that he had any physical deformities from syphilis so therefore as in the episode i've put that it may be that the reason why they don't state uh he has like uh, his his nose is all caved in and do all the horrible things that you'd expect because let's not forget if if a high percentage of people in that era have syphilis it's most likely that this was very normal uh, originally there was a whole section i was going to put in here about the normality of syphilis so in and around this era there was um a, a club called the no nose club so because when you've got uh, the latter stage of syphilis um what it tends to do as mentioned in the episode it eats into your skin <coughs> it eats into your bones it makes lesions and if you if you type in um victorian pictures syphilis there's some really horrible ones where uh, people have no noses there it's like it's like part of their face has been eaten away um people started making artificial noses for them to wear obviously they didn't have anything that looked like rubber or anything that we would probably use today to to kind of uh as an artificial nose so they they were made out of metal so people would have metal noses attached around their ears like kind of like glasses or attached around the back of the head head uh and then there'd be no these no nose clubs where people who have late stage syphilis could turn up meet like-minded people and sit there without being kind of persecuted and pointed at so uh so that kind of really shows how it was it was a very 
it was very uh, uh, a lot of people had it. I can't think what the word is. Uh, it was a very common thing around the time. So, um, so therefore, it is likely that in this report, I think today we would probably say, "Oh, this man has has late stage syphilis," and we, we would r- recount all the details. But in eighteen eighty three it's likely that it's just one of those things that wouldn't have cropped up in the in the, in the court records although it does slightly at the end as kind of a potential alibi um doesn't seem to last long with his wives uh i can't remember remember how long he lasted with his uh previous wife it wasn't long though was it um when did they get married uh 1872 so actually it lasted when did he leave his uh 1879 so it lasted uh the longest of all of them it lasted six years uh but then his second wife whose name i won't mention uh because that is a quiz question well done michael that lasted just a couple of months um and it was in and around the time that his he married around the time that his final child was being born so what a what an utter shit bag he is um uh and then obviously the first attempted murder on his wife so if if the uh syphilis is kicking in by this point if it is the later stage syphilis that's coming back in because let's not forget there's the this quiz questions make this really difficult there's the point in the syphilis where kind of you think you cured you think nothing's really happening and then all of a sudden it starts to come back with a vengeance so it looks likely that this may have been happening over a period of a couple of years so probably like 1880 until 1883 although he does seem to have lasted a long time in his um in uh uh, uh, Broadmoor, Broadmoor Psychiatric Prison, which is interesting because um, Al Capone had neurosyphilis as well, based on uh, stemming from syphilis, and then he he got all the dementia symptoms as you'd expect, and then he died. Uh, whereas William Crease seemed to last an extra, I think it was forty three years. So um, we're not too sure why. It, it kind of some people it it, it goes into a, a, a second stage of kind of a. A, a disappearance um i think when i did the tour i'd found a little bit of information that suggested that he may have contracted another disease uh he may have i th- it wasn't typhoid but there was something like that and that as as we're kind of finding out now especially with things like cancer they're working out that sometimes the way to fight cancer is to fight it by using another disease because obviously um diseases want one dominance and if you've got one disease that you can definitely cure and one disease that you can't cure sometimes it's worth adding another disease in there to make it fight off the other infection because you know bodies and diseases and and uh, bacteria are great at doing that so uh um so we don't know why he lasted that long but he really did dying at, <coughs> at the age of 83 so a hell of a long age uh, to the point where um normally you would think that this would be something that i would find in the national census but i didn't it was i found it first in a newspaper so it was such a prominent thing obviously his the murder that was committed was it wasn't massively prominent but it was in a lot of newspapers but the fact that he died age 83 and he'd been in broadmoor for so long and you know he'd got syphilis this was kind of quite an interesting thing so it made it into the newspaper uh the attack on his second wife 
dispute over whether it was at 8 Maybury Terrace or 8 Maysborough Terrace. So I've used Maybury, but uh, I checked the old maps. Um, There's both versions on there on the map, so it's uh, it's hard to really pin down. Um, Seemed to have been an an utter shit by that point. Um, He's unable to hold down a job, so he's got at least three years, maybe I'm guessing three, four, maybe five years. So probably not able to hold down a job at the end of his marriage to his first wife. Definitely no job with a second wife, which is why they're they're moving around. They moved to London. They moved to Eastbourne on the south coast. She's a seamstress. He's selling off her sewing machine, which is stupid because it's the only way that she can make money. And he pawned it for 14 shillings, which is not a lot of money. And then he started to pawn off all of her clothes as well. Hence, all she'd eaten for the last couple of days with a potato and a piece of bread. Um... Obviously, she did, did uh, a very smart thing, and she got the police involved and was like, I need protection, I need it, and to have them arrested, and the police were there. Um, I won't go into the full details about the attack, because pretty much everything I put into the episode. Um, but that trial for attempted murder, uh, so it was at uh, Maidstone Petty Sessions, um, should have been two counts of attempted murder, uh, so that would have been a life of hard labour. He would have been put away for... Well, I mean, we say life, obviously, sometimes we mean 10, 15 years. But given the fact that he attacked a policeman, which, as we know, according to the law, is worse than attacking anyone else. Still don't understand why that's there. Um, a person is a person. Do you know, you, you uh, murder or attempt to murder someone. It shouldn't matter what they do, because do you know what will, will happen next? The next they'll go, oh, no, it should be a treason to uh, murder a member of parliament fuck them member member of parliament you murder them and then all the money that they've stolen falls out of their pockets utter shitbags i'm sure some of them are nice but not all of them um so with mrs bourne who was the landlady she was too ill to attend she was the only witness except for uh the policeman uh pc gambrill uh her statement was read out in court so she's made a statement they read it out but because there was no medical certificate to prove that she was ill her deposition uh could not be accepted as evidence therefore they couldn't charge him with attempted murder they could just charge him with the minor offense of theft uh it's it's down as theft or dishonesty so um, he went to uh, HMP Lewes on the Brighton Road, and he he only seems to have lasted about uh, three years. Uh, he was at Lewes Prison and St Mary's Westout Prison in Lewes as well. Um, uh, and then he moves in with Eliza. We don't know how he met Eliza. Um, we know that her father, John Horseman, was a confectioner slash tobacco tobacconist at 79 montague street in worthing so because worthing is kind of near brighton and eastbourne it's kind of in that area on the south coast it's likely that she may have met him there and then they made the decision to go to london so um yeah uh i think that's it i think that's all the details i think because everything else i've pretty much put into the episode uh yeah i think that's it well done michael i think that's more than enough do you know why? It's because my brain is focused on cake. Cake and Professor Alice Roberts. Two of the, two of the greatest things apart from Eva in the world. Cake and Professor Alice Roberts. I can't I can't just call her Alice or Mrs. Roberts or Professor. I have to call her Professor Alice Roberts. 
She de- she's, she's worked hard. She deserves me to be call her Professor Alice Roberts. Oh, boat mooring up. We're just coming past. There you go. Good timing for me. Otherwise, I'd have to st- I'd have to stop recording at this point. Um, if if I was recording the regular episode, because of the noise, it rocks the boat a little bit. There you go, boat rocking. Um, what a noise! Someone's got a horrible engine. That'll be uh, that'll be a crappy wide beam that's uh, mooring up. Yeah, boo! Bugger off you! Right, time for cake, Michael time for cake cake clock oh right let's do the quiz questions uh question number one uh what were the four stages of syphilis primary secondary latency tertiary there you go exciting question number two how many londoners had syphilis in the early 19th century they said one in five Although I was trying to find a report I found recently and I got the details and I put it somewhere, but I can't remember where I put it. And it was about how many girls aged uh, 13 to 15 had syphilis. And it was ridiculous, the number of girls who... Not not blaming girls, but if you think about it, most likely many would have been put into prostitution or, or, or something like that, or uh, being married off at an early age as well. So, um, yeah, I, I can't remember what it was, but it was it was higher than one, much higher than one in five. Uh, question number three, name one of the four ways that mercury was administered as a cure for syphilis. Uh, as a pill, as an ointment, as a steam bath or injected directly into the urethra nice question number four what was William Creasy's middle name it was Selleck as in Tom Selleck maybe they're related question number five uh, name one of the four occupations William's family had (laughs) when he was born uh his dad was a navy excise officer uh the rest of his family clockmaker seamstress and glove maker so skilled and semi-skilled professions so uh he, he came from not a bad family to be honest and given the fact that he was a saddle maker as well uh question number six what village in devon did william grow up and raise his family in almost it was great torrington Question number seven, what was the name of William's first wife? It was Lucy Werry. Question number eight, what was the name of William's second wife? Harriet Potter. And question number nine, what job did William do for a living? There you go, I just gave it away a second ago. Uh, Saddle maker, so you can have that one for free. There you go, enjoy. Oh, that's me done. That was a long day. That was a long day, but worth it. Uh, so that's me done, folks. Um, uh, is this the final one? This is the final one for this is my final. This is the final one of my singles. So uh, next week is a three-parter. Um, something I'll be working on for ages. Uh, very exciting. Uh, looking forward to writing that one. Yeah, it's going to be good. Uh, so that's me done. Uh, time for cake. Time for the prof- Professor Alice Roberts. 
time for uh, rice, fish and vegetables. Mm, exciting. Uh, and then I will go to bed. And then Eva will, will come in. The boat will be rocking and she'll probably demand that either I make her some food, clean up her sick or have sex with her. Cause you know what she's like. Anyway, that's me done. Have yourself a good week, folks. Stay safe, be good. And lots of love. And thank you for listening to the show. It's very much appreciated. Um, best wishes. Don't get syphilis. Bye. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.